Ah, there you are. <laughs> well, good morning. Now, we are in week two of a six-week series taking us through Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. So there are six chapters. Steve dealt with chapter one last week. Today we're looking at chapter two, and then we go on until we get to the point of the school summer holidays when the series will come to an end. So you'll remember from last week that uh, the Apostle Paul has written this letter to Timothy, who is the young leader of a church in Ephesus. Ephesus is in what is now called Turkey, Asia Minor. And uh, if you go to Ephesus these days, you won't find much evidence of a Christian church, but you will find the ruins of a temple to the goddess Diana, also called the goddess Artemis. She's got a Greek name and she's got a Roman name. And uh, the cult of Diana was very uh, prevalent in Ephesus. And that colors some of the stuff that we're going to read today about problems in the church. Every church has problems. Uh, if you want to uh, be encouraged, read Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. There's a church in Corinth over in what we now call Greece. And um, uh, as you read through that letter, you'll discover that that church had just about every possible thing you could think of going wrong in its midst. And it's worth reading because it makes you feel quite smug, you know, that um, we haven't got all those problems in our own church, at least if we have, they're very well hidden. Uh, so Timothy, the leader of this church, was young, and as Paul said last week, he was not only young, he was also sickly, and he was also um, prone to fear and uh, sort of timidity. I was going to say cowardice, but certainly timidity. So with that in mind, we're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2. As we read this, it's quite a heavy chunk and your spirits may sink slightly if you think that I'm going to deal with it word for word. I'll try not to. Uh, you may feel, as we go through this sermon, that you don't quite agree with me here and there. But hang on to the end, because by the time we get to the end of the sermon, I want to be even-handed, and I want to um, explain that there may be more than one way to understand some of these scriptures. So don't interrupt me in anger. Uh, wait till the end, and then we'll see how we get on. Right, here we go. Now we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, 
adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. That's quite a bit to take in, isn't it? Right. So we're going to look at this under three headings. We're going to think about being good citizens. We're going to think about the good news that we share. And we're going to think about our lives being characterized by good deeds. So first of all, we're going to think about good citizenship. And this really is, well, you ask yourself, you know, how, how do you act as a good citizen? Well, you could recycle. You could not drop litter. You could try not to exceed the speed limit. You could make sure that your taxes are paid on time. Yeah. But what Paul encourages Timothy is to make sure that in the church in Ephesus, you show your good citizenship by praying for kings and those in authority over you. And we do that today. We're encouraged biblically to pray for our rulers, um, our nominal leaders like the, the king and the royal family, but also our political rulers and governors. Now, Paul uses four different words here. He says that we're to use petitions. A petition is a prayer for a particular need. We're to use prayers, a general word for all types of prayer. We're to use intercession, which is an urgent or bold request when we pray. And we're to show thanksgiving or gratitude for the answers to prayer that we receive. Everyone is to be prayed for, but especially kings and those in high positions. Why are they mentioned specially? Well, one of the reasons might be, as it goes on to say in this uh, particular paragraph, so that the Christian church could live peaceful and quiet lives. And in the last sentence of this section, uh, so that the message of the gospel can be shared, so that people can be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So one of the reasons why we pray for our leaders is because we want our life to be lived in a culture which enables the gospel message to be shared. So in other words, we, we want to pray that we will live in a culture that our leaders will enable us to live in a culture where there is religious tolerance, religious freedom, the freedom to share the gospel message, and a life which is quiet and peaceable. Now, I need to read the next bit because it's a bit complicated. When understood against the backdrop of the Roman emperor cult of the late first century common era, these words take on a new meaning. Stay with me because it's, it's two paragraphs and it's quite interesting. 
In 510 BC, Rome had, become a, had been a republic governed by two consuls who were elected to their positions. This system was in effect for half a millennium, but it was then changed in two significant ways. First, starting with the rule of Julius Caesar, the republic was replaced by the imperial system. That means that one emperor would rule from now on. And second, Rome gradually introduced the idea that the emperor was a god. After his assassination in 27 BCE, Julius Caesar was soon proclaimed divine and accepted among the gods of the state, officially allowing for the initiation of his worship. Later in the first century, this type of emperor cult gradually developed in the whole Roman Empire as a unifying and politically stabilizing force. It gave rise to the custom of praying to the divinized Caesars. Now I read all that because notice what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. We are not to pray to the kings. We are to pray for the kings. And in the culture of first century Ephesus, this was quite revolutionary. We are not to pray to the emperor Caesar. Instead, we are to pray for the emperor Caesar. And we are to pray to the true God and pray blessings upon the emperor Caesar. Now let's bring that up to our day. We may not agree with the politics of some of the people who are leading our country. So it's a bit better this week than it was last. <laughs> a personal view. <laughs> but we are told biblically to pray for these people. We don't pray for them because we like them or because we approve of them. We pray for them because they need God's help to do the job of governing the country properly. Okay, now then, what are we going to pray for our leaders, our politicians? We want to take um, an idea from the Bible. Solomon, when he became king over Israel, prayed that he would be given wisdom and discernment. He wanted that rather than long life. As it happened, God gave him all of those things. But he prayed for wisdom and discernment. Now, we may have politicians who don't themselves pray for wisdom and discernment. No, I won't make any comment. Uh, um, we may have politicians who think that um, wisdom and um, the definition of what truth consists of um, depends upon them. But we need to pray on their behalf that God will give them wisdom and discernment. And we need to pray that he will give them integrity uh, and honesty and a recognition that truth and lies are not the same thing and that expediency is not necessarily the same as truth. King Solomon was given an understanding mind to govern the people. It says in 1 Kings. And we need to pray that our leaders will be given that as well. And we need to pray that they will be instruments of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 13. Uh, that the rulers, authorities and governing bodies are actually servants of God. And that um, 
even if they don't realize it themselves and even if they don't acknowledge God. There's a very interesting verse in Proverbs 21. It says this, The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hands of God. He turns it wherever he chooses. The stream doesn't choose which way it flows. It's the nature of the terrain that decides that. So according to Proverbs 21, the heart of the king doesn't necessarily decide on his policies or the direction that his policies will go in. He is like a stream of water in the hands of God. God can change how he behaves, how he acts, even if he doesn't start off with a particularly godly mindset. And we can pray for God's will to be done. I mean, that's pretty basic. That's part of the, the, um, the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. And perhaps those few simple words are what we need to pray over our politicians without telling God what the answer to that will be, just leaving it up to him. Lord, may your will be done as the cabinet meets, as the, uh, our politicians meet in the chamber of the House of Commons, and so on. I get some comfort from thinking about King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember back in in the days of um, the exile, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, and he was a really bad king, and he he persecuted God's people, something terrible. But God stepped in and reduced him to an animal who crawled on all fours and ate grass. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar was changed Now, it's pretty extreme, but perhaps we should pray sometimes that some of the rulers of this world would be brought to their knees by God and taught a lesson. And just as Nebuchadnezzar was literally brought to his knees and ate grass like an ox, it says in the Bible. So there are various rulers in this world, and I'm not naming them because this sermon is going out on the internet, uh, for whom perhaps that is the right thing to pray. So we're good citizens if, as Christian people, we pray for peace in our time, the ability to share the gospel message, religious freedom, and we pray that our leaders will be led by God to make right decisions. That's the first of three points. The second point is to do with good news. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. It's hidden away in the middle of this passage, which is about praying for kings and then um, the place of women in the church, which we'll come to in a minute. Don't worry, we'll get there. But um, here's an absolute gem just for us to feast on for a moment. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. And this little um, um, picture will probably help us understand. Sometimes as Christians, we have difficulty with this idea that we should need Jesus to bridge the gap between ourselves and God. Sometimes we have difficulty. And our difficulty is either because we don't understand the problem or because we don't understand pardon 
problem and pardon. Right. We, some of us are brought up in a culture where we think that um, all our problems are within ourselves. If I can develop a better self-image, I will lead a happy life. If I can find a better job, I will lead a happier life. If I can be reconciled to various members of my family, I will lead a happier life. Now, all of those things are true, of course. But they shortchange us if we're trying to ask biblically what the real problem is in life. The real problem in life is sin. We and all people are tainted by sin. We continue to be tainted by sin. Our decisions, our actions, our behaviors are all tainted by sin. And that has separated us from God. If we think that the problem is to do with our own self-image, then biblically, we are shortchanging ourselves. The problem biblically is that sin has separated us from God. And we need a presence from outside ourselves to bridge that gap and to bring us back to God. And the good news, of course, and we sang about it earlier, is that Jesus is the one who, by his death on the cross, has reconciled us to God. He has given us that way to get back to God. One of Steve's favorite verses. Most times we have communion, he will quote this verse. Right? Um, and I've forgotten what it is now. Hang on. <laughs> he who had no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the mediator, the one who bridges the gap between us and God. So even if we don't have a, a, a problem with the problem of sin, some of us have a problem as Christians with the fact of pardon. Some of us are still carrying around a sense of guilt and a memory of times when we have let God down, when our sin is very con- we're very conscious in our minds of our sin, and we're very conscious of that gap between us and God. And we forget, or we do not give sufficient credit to the fact that Jesus has dealt with that sin. Amen. Thank you. Um, let me quote to you from uh, Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions, our sins from us. You know, even some of us who've been Christians for years, we are still dogged by our own sense of having let God down. And yet we bring that to the cross and we let Jesus deal with it because he has dealt with it. And there is no condemnation, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, to those who are in Christ Jesus. It may help you to think about it like this. Do you know what a black box is? A black box is orange, of course. It's not black at all. Uh, A black box is what's kept in the the tail of an aeroplane, which records all the activity that's going on on the flight deck. You have to forgive us. Liz and I have a pilot son, and so most of my examples in sermons are usually connected with British Airways one way or another. Um, 
So the pilots will be sitting on the, on the flight deck and their conversation is recorded on the black box and all the sort of moves that they make with the dials and the knobs and so on is all recorded for half an hour's worth. And then after that, the new recording overlays on the old, and the old disappears. So, you know, if you find a black box, you will know what was happening for the last half hour, but you won't know what was happening eight hours earlier in the flight. Now, it may be helpful for us to think about the way that God deals with our sin like that. Some of us have really long memories, and we, we remember back to a time when we let God down years and years and years ago. But God doesn't look at it like that. God has wiped it all clean it's just as if the recording in the black box has been renewed. And so, you know, when you say to God, I'm terribly sorry for that sin that I committed 15 years ago, God says, what sin? What sin? Because our pardon is complete in the fact that Jesus has bridged the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. Now, for some of us, that's the most important point of the sermon, because I'm going to go on to talk about women talking in church. But for some of us, this is the most important point of the sermon. And for some of us, we will want to ask for prayer at the end of the service, just to get this sorted out in our minds. Jesus, our mediator. But we will move on, and we'll move on, not to good news, good citizens, good news, but good deeds, now, it's already five past 11, so mercifully, I won't have to spend very long on this section. I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I want the women to dress with propriety. I want them to show good deeds. Read the end of the next paragraph. We are to behave with faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Now, what is propriety? Dictionary definition, correct moral behavior or actions. Second definition, the rules of polite social behavior. So why does the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, who's the young, inexperienced leader of this church which has got all manner of problems, why does he say this? I think because the church is operating in Ephesus in a town where the culture of the goddess Diana is very prevalent. And the church needs to be on its best behavior. And so acting in a way which shows propriety and good deeds is essential. Now, I could go on longer about that, but I won't because I want to move on to the next bit. And it's already five past 12, 11. Um, <laughs> A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. We need to ask some questions about this. We need to ask, first of all, whether this policy, as explained by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, is one which is temporary or for all time. We need to ask if it was God's policy as well as Paul's policy, and I'll come to that in a minute. 
and we need to ask whether it's a policy that churches today should be adopting. There is more than one view about this. And before I end the sermon, I will try to give space for opposing views. So there's not much trouble with what we call exegesis here. In other words, what does the text actually mean? The trouble is to do with hermeneutics. The trouble is how we apply this verse to life today. Now, there's no difficulty looking at question number one. We would all agree that this verse says that for Timothy as the leader of the church in Ephesus, there is to be some restriction on what women are allowed to do in the church. The question we're going to come to is whether that restriction applies in other churches or indeed at other periods of history. So was this a permanent policy or was it a temporary policy? Well, (laughs) there are various views. The other source of information we've got about how people should behave in a church congregation is from when Paul writes to the um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that women can pray and prophesy if they have their head covered. A bit later on, he says that their long hair is a covering. So whether he means that they should wear a hat, as happened in the church where Liz and I were brought up years ago, or or whether it just refers to long hair, we don't really know. But it's quite clear that if the women did that in Corinth, they were allowed to pray and prophesy. They were allowed to speak. And they were allowed to speak in the congregation of the church. But if we read chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, then we're told that the women should be silent. Now, they can't, the, both of those positions cannot be a position for all time. You, you cannot have um, a verse in one chapter that says the women should be silent and a verse in another chapter that says the women are allowed to speak. Um, they can't both be true for all time. But they could be true for particular periods of history in particular church situations. Now, let me just suggest that there might be two reasons why the church in Ephesus should have this restriction on women speaking. In fact, it isn't even women speaking. It's a woman speaking. Earlier in the passage, we had about men, in the plural, lifting up holy hands in prayer. Now we have about a woman, in the singular, not being allowed to speak in the church. It's not too fanciful to assume that this actually refers to one person. One person, Timothy, very young, very timid, very immature leader. And perhaps in the church congregation, a lady with much greater self-assurance than Timothy has got who doesn't have any great difficulty in speaking her mind at appropriate and possibly inappropriate moments. If that's the case, then we can understand why Paul should say that a woman, a particular woman, know who I mean, Timothy, I'm not naming names, but keep her under a tight rein for the good of the church. That's a possible reading. It's also 
the fact that the goddess Diana, or the goddess Artemis in Ephesus, exercised uh, a, a tremendous um, dominant role over society as a whole. And it may be that for that reason, uh, Paul wants the women in the church to be silent. So, to answer our first question, we can understand why a policy like that might have been appropriate to the church context that Timothy was ministering in and that Paul is talking about. But is it also... So we can see that it could be temporary. The jury is out on whether it should be permanent, but we'll come to that. Then we, ha- we ask whether it's God's policy. Well, now... Um, <laughs> There are times in Paul's writing when he makes it clear that he's in touch with God. When he's writing in 1 Corinthians 7, for example, he's writing about um, young people and whether they should marry or not, and young widows in the church and whether they should remarry or not. And at various points he says, I have God's mind on this and I'm telling you X, Y, Z. And at another point he says, this is me speaking, not God. So in other words, Paul, in his leadership role, is aware that sometimes he's got a sort of hotline to God, and at other times he's inventing policy which seems to him good at the time. So it's not to deny the authority of Scripture to ask the second question. And the Old Testament comes to our answer because the book of Judges gives us an example of a lady, Deborah, who was a prophetess and also um, a judge, um, a ruler in Israel. And God prospered her ministry and enabled her to take authority over uh, men and over um, various congregations. Now, I could go on about this at some length, but I won't, except just to say that there is biblical evidence that at various times in history, what Paul is suggesting for the church in Ephesus is not how God would have operated. Finally, is this a manual for how churches ought to operate today? Well, do we take everything that Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy as a manual for today? Because when we get into chapter 5, we'll discover there's a whole lot of stuff about um, creating a support fund to help the, the widows in the church. No, we don't do that today. We don't need to because we have a social security and a state that looks after that. So, you know, it's a a somewhat naive view of an instruction to a first century church to assume that everything in the letter that applies to the church in uh, Ephesus also applies to us and to other churches today. So, I'm of the opinion that what Paul writes to Timothy, is not something which necessarily has to be um, part and parcel of how we organize churches today. I'm going to st- skip over the next point because we've run out of time, but I just want to move on. That was, that was sorry, that was um, uh, Diana or Artemis. Um, uh, there's a whole cult built around her, but I won't go into that because there isn't time. We're just coming to our final point. I wanted to be fair to both sides of this argument. There are church traditions that feel that 
the instruction given to Timothy here about the church in Ephesus should apply to church congregations today. Uh, There's one particular body called the FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, and this is their statement in white. To ignore the prohibitions of Scripture is not something we can endorse. And they go on to the bottom. This means that churches belonging to their denomination should not have a woman pastor teacher or women elders. It's a view that quite a lot of churches will take. It's not a view that I take personally because I think it is overridden by this verse from Galatians which sets out a principle which I think is more a principle for all time. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And I think that uh, that is the policy, um, the scriptural principle that I would want to um, adhere to. If you were a first century Jew praying in the temple, you for a start, you would be a man praying in the temple. And you would pray this. You begin your prayers by saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm a free man and not a slave. I thank you, Lord, that I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. And over that culture, Scripture churns everything up. I'm glad I'm a free man, not a slave. Paul says to the Galatians, there's neither free nor slave. I'm glad I'm a man, not a woman. There's neither male nor female. I'm glad I'm a Jew, not a Gentile. There's no racial distinction amongst people who are Christians. So it's been a bit of a heavy sermon. And I want you to go away rejoicing in the truth of this verse from Galatians. Our identity is in Christ. Our our identity is not being a free man or a slave, being a man or a woman, being a Jew or a Gentile. Our identity is being a member of the body of Christ, Jesus as our head, as our saviour.